You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Well, I want to welcome you. Um, if you don't know me, my name's uh, Adam. I'm one of the pastors, one of the other Adam pastors uh, here at RCC. And I want to say Merry Christmas as we are on our last Sunday before Christmas. Who's a little pumped about that? Uh, not that pumped. Okay. A little, yeah. Mixed. Mixed. Okay. Uh, and we are going through a series. Uh, we're in the fourth week of our series, Behold Your King. And what we're doing in Behold Your King is every week we're holding up really the most Christ-exalting text that the Bible has to offer every week. Kind of like a, a diamond. And we are just holding up. To behold the person, the work, the majesty uh, of Jesus Christ. And every week we're taking these texts and we're kind of just, just twisting the diamond a little bit to see, to catch it in a new light, to see in a different way the beauty, magnitude of Jesus and why he is worthy of all our life to be worshipped. And uh, these sermons, if you'll, you'll, you'll notice these sermons, you're not going to come away, if you're a note taker, you're not coming away with like the eight point application of what you need to do this week. The applications of all these sermons is one thing. It is behold Jesus, worship him, and let the conviction of these sermons just flow out of beholding and worshiping a God that, um, that we're going to see today is humble. Um, this, out of every other characteristic of greatness that we've considered in this sermon series, this one runs the most counter to how our culture views greatness. In a world uh, like ours, greatness looks like up and to the right, always winning, making yourself big, having influence, power, money, platform, notoriety, degrees, titles. Look at how many fights Ali won. Look at how many copies J.K. Rowling sold. Look at how many medals Phelps came away with. Look at how many MVPs Michael Jordan won. Look at how many hot dogs Joey Chestnut ate in 10 minutes. 76, by the way, if you were wondering. It's pretty incredible. Look at how high Justin Bieber's voice can go. Those are the greats, right? But this morning, the Apostle Paul wants to lead us to something greater, an attribute of Jesus that says true greatness. He doesn't say, look at how big, uh, look how high Jesus is. What he says when he looks at Jesus, look at how, Je- look at how great Jesus is. Look at how low he went. And in a world full of people looking primarily to serve, one, to serve ourselves, Paul is calling us and showing us something starkly different about Jesus. And he calls us, the church, his followers, to live a countercultural, starkly different life. He says this in verse 3, which is the verse before Jess read. He invites the church to do this. Do nothing. Let that sink in for a second. Do nothing. No action. From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul's calling the church, he's calling us, church, to this countercultural community that is held together by the glue of not making yourself important, but making others more important. By not uh, serving your own needs first, but serving other needs first. And you think about this, man, how, what what a community that would be, that, that that would be an incredible community, wouldn't it? Imagine how a conflict with someone would go if you both were considering each other more important than the other person, than yourself. 
I almost like want to be in conflict, if that's the case. You know what I mean? Almost. Imagine how we would comfort one another in pain and loss if we put each other before ourselves. Imagine how we would encourage, cheerlead, build up each other if we were laying our lives down for one another. And it sounds beautiful. It's a beautiful picture, right? But there's a problem. You see, you see the problem, right? Because you know yourself. Uh, you know people that our hardwired, our hardwired condition seems to be selfish ambition. It seems to be thinking of ourselves ahead or more significant than other people. No one has to convince you uh, to, to be the first priority in your life. Uh, no one has to convince my son Deacon, who's two and a half, that uh, he's the first priority in everything he does, that everything is his, everything revolves around his little world, right? Um, no one has to convince you to put yourself on the priority of how you spend your money, your time, your energy, your daydreaming, your work. I like how uh, Jim Gaffigan supports this, and uh, he's a comedian. He says, uh, just look, look at the gym and look at all the mirrors in the gym uh, as, a, as a point of kind of our self-focus. And uh, he says, uh, kind of making fun of uh, guys in the gym, which, which I'll, I'll, he kind of lumps me in there too. But he does this impression. And he's, uh, basically, he says, let me go to the gym and let me work. If you've seen this, let me work on myself while I look on myself, while I read Self Magazine, while I post on my Facebook page, while I see what I've written about myself. And it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true, right? We're in this daily knockdown, drag out fight with pride and selfishness. Um, one writer, John Stott, says this really well. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So, friends, how, did, how does Paul attempt to kill our natural pride, our natural self-ambition, and usher us into a place where we would say, man, I'm going to lower myself and I'm going to lift up other people at my own expense? Does he say, man, be selfless and lay down your life and then you'll really kind of get paid off at the end uh, in, in some kind of prosperity, some kind of blessing at the end? That's not what he does. That's, uh, that's kind of like a transactional religious moralism. Does he say, man, Philippians, you guys are so stinking selfish. I'm embarrassed. I don't even want to tell other people. I don't want to tell my other apostle buddies about you guys because you guys are an embarrassment. He doesn't do that. That's shame. That's guilt. That doesn't change your heart. What does he say? What does he do? He says, behold Jesus. Behold the one who deserved everything, owned everything, and gave it all away. He is the one humble, unifying, sacrificial servant that you and I are not. And he says, look at him, be in awe. And then he says, you can actually be like Christ. He says, you can have the same mindset of Christ in verse 5. A lot of people consider this passage to be the most exalted picture of Jesus uh, in the Bible. One scholar said it's like a Bach uh, cantata that you can... Am I saying it right, Megan? Cantata? Yeah? No. Um, like a Bach cantata that you can just listen to over and over and over again. It never gets old. And that's why this passage, more than any other, has changed my life. More than any other in the Bible. Because this picture for me, guys, never gets old. It, it, it keeps... Uh, bowing my heart in worship. It keeps convicting me of my sin. Whenever I have a long to-do list that just kind of bulldozes people being a priority in my life, this verse just 
shows me uh, how, this passage reminds me of how Jesus poured himself out for me, that people are more important than my to-do list. When I want to draw attention to myself or to my reputation, Jesus shows me his example, how he actively lowered himself. My struggle, our struggle with pride is so disarmed by the God who came to even wash our feet, the God we see here. And this short passage is a roller coaster. It like dips down in this just down, 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 and how low Jesus lowered himself. But then it catapults us back up to the highest exalting praise that really the scriptures have to offer as we gaze at the exalted Son of God. So here's what I want you to get, guys. Just, just a big idea here is that at the incarnation, the deep humility and the high exaltation of God are on full display. The deep humility and the high exaltation are on display in the incarnation. So this, this passage is really split into two pieces. You see the low humiliation of Jesus and the high exalted king. And I'm going to split those into two parts. So let's look at uh, point one. Really, you have two action steps. Uh, behold the humble king, bow to the exalted king. Or humble Messiah, and then bow to the exalted king. Behold and bow. Uh, let's behold the humble Messiah. Verses five to eight. I want to look at Jesus' humility in three parts. Verse 6, we see that Jesus has a humble renunciation. Look at verse 6 again with me. It says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, so Paul makes clear, Jesus is God. The Son of God didn't usher or come into existence 2,000 years ago. He's pre-existed, fully divine, from, fully divine from eternity past, eternity future, there was never a time when the sun did not exist. And we've heard this over and over again in the past uh, three weeks. In John 1, you heard that Jesus is the incarnate word of God, always existing. Uh, two weeks ago, you heard Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And then last week, we heard he's the visible image of the invisible God. But what Paul is saying here is despite being all those things, Despite having all those privileges, he did not grasp to take advantage of those rights and privileges. He renounced praise. He renounced honor. He renounced a reputation that was already his. Jesus renounced the honor rightfully his and to be spit on on the way to the cross and nakedly or stripped naked and shameful. He renounced the perfect reputation he already had to come to earth and be accused of being a drunkard of being a blasphemer and being an illegitimate child with no father. Jesus renounced what he already had, being worshipped by tens and tens of thousands of angels to be cursed by angry crowds yelling, crucify him. There's been, uh, if you track uh, Japanese, Japanese royalty culture like I do, um, there's been, I'm just kidding, I usually don't, but um, this one stuck out to me. There's been a lot of turmoil in the royal Japanese family this year because uh, Princess uh, Mako, she has decided to marry a commoner, which to us doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you're in the royal family, to marry outside of royalty is a big deal. And it's been such a hubbub because when she married this commoner recently in October, she actually renounced any royal privileges she had. So any privileges of being in the family, any rights, any prestige, any benefits that came of that, she said, I'm going to renounce all that so I can be in relationship with my spouse. And that's even more so. What a greater renunciation, a greater uh, Jesus who experienced a renouncing of his experience of his divine royalty. 
to redeem his bride and to be with his people forever. And guys, this is so powerful and poignant when we see it compared to us, right? Think about Adam and Eve. Jesus is equal with God. Adam and Eve were not equal with God, right? Jesus uh, did not try to grasp being God, what we just heard, but Adam and Eve did, right? They, they went and grasped the fruit because of they were deceived and said, you can be like God. If you grasp for that privilege, if you grasp for that right, then you can be like God. You can dethrone God and be just like him. They grabbed the fruit and they ate because they were tricked into thinking, hey, you can be like God. If you just, if you just have your own initiative and your own um, kind of pull yourself by your bootstraps, you can be like God. And friends, Adam and Eve represent where you and I, exactly where we are. We, we share their same sickness of heart to dethrone and replace God, our same natural selfish ambition that they had when they took the fruit. I don't need to give you a lot of illustrations or examples to convince you that people uh, naturally claw and grasp for the rights and privileges, everything we can get. Sin convinces us we are much more significant uh, than everyone else around us. And so we want to put everyone in orbit around our lives. And we want to grab the affirmation, we grab the credit, we grab influence, and we try to get all those things orbiting around us instead of God. So Jesus here, he stands apart in contrast as the giver, the one who had everything and gave us, the ones who don't have very much but are always trying to grab to get more. And Jesus humbly renounced his privileges. Secondly, I want to look at the humble incarnation of Jesus. Uh, Look at verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Such a powerful verse. Uh, there's been a historical debate on what this emptying means. What does it mean for Jesus to empty himself, the Son of God to empty himself? And uh, in the 20th century, there was a, a group of bros that got together, and um, they uh, created this thing called the kenosis theory. That's from the Greek word uh, that this emptying comes from. And basically, they said Jesus uh, wasn't God when he was on earth. He emptied himself of his divinity. He was no longer God when he came, and that's what this verse means. Uh, today, that, that view is fully dis- or almost exclusively discredited. Uh, in reality, when you look at all the scriptures, you see a God that became human, um, but without ceasing, was always God. The incarnation was not really about the subtraction of deity, but it was about the addition of humanity for Jesus. And what the pouring out here, the emptying, signifies is actually qualified by the positive, is defined by the positive action that this verse is describing. So he's saying... Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. The Son of God emptying himself is him pouring himself out, literally pouring himself out to serve and become a servant. I want to focus in on this servant. This is crazy. So first of all, this word servant is more accurately translated uh, slave. The the, um, translators get a little timid. I think with this word, uh, because slave, uh, as maybe it should, um, pushes against our modern sensibilities, right? But that's actually, I think, the power of the text. Let this sink in for a minute. The God of all eternity, the God who is all-powerful, the God who holds up the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews tells us, the one that because your heart is beating right now, it's beating because he says so, the one that's self-sufficient, Eternal, 
holy, just, and, and, and even the one in which those things find their existence became a slave to the people he created. This is really absurd. It's an absurd notion, right? That the one that holds everyone together would come as a humble slave to serve the people he created, the people that he upholds. In the Roman world, becoming a slave meant you lost all your privileges, all your rights, all your identity as a human being. Gone. You're just property. You you guys see the unfathomable gap here, right? Jesus, you cannot measure his significance, his worth, his value. Everything that has value has its value because Jesus has given it value, right? And then Jesus places himself, he lowers himself to the place of least significance possible during his life. Uh, I love what one commentator says. He says, Christ went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest precisely because such selfless love was an expression of his deity. So what he's saying here is, this is not a fluke. This is like the divine heartbeat. This is who God is. He, he didn't become humble just for a moment when he came to earth. Like forever past, he wasn't humble, came to earth, had some, was humble, eternity future, not humble. It's saying Christ has been eternally humble. He, he didn't just become it when he came to earth. And actually his time on earth is when his humility is on full display. Jesus emptying himself for you is not like this one-time deal or some special circumstance. Pouring himself out for others actually reveals the heart that God has for you, for the people that he loves. It's his character. It's his heart. And and this this unfathomable gap, I really can't can't give you a picture or an illustration I think helps us grasp it enough, but I'm going to try. I want you to picture... A person of most significance or influence or platform um, that you can imagine in this, in this world. I'm just going to go with the president. You can go someone else if you want. Imagine you get a letter in the mail. You get a phone call from this person's people. Their people call you, right? Hey, we want to come over to your humble abode for a dinner party. You say yes. You're nervous, but you're thinking you're cleaning your home. You're thinking uh, the food you want to get together. You probably hire Pastor uh, Thomas to come over and cook your food for you, uh, who is a professional chef. That's what I would do, at least. You pick out your outfit. You think how the night's going to go. Your, your place is looking great. The night comes. They show up. Dinner starts great. And then the president says, hey, I just um, can I use your bathroom. You're like, sure, yeah, up the hall. And as he opens the door, you're in your seat, having a good time. But then you realize, oh, no, I forgot to clean the bathroom. I don't just mean like forgot to clean a little bit. I mean like you got like the nasty toothpaste stuff on the window or like the floss gunk from if you're a flosser, which you should be. Um, and you got like the grimy toilets. I don't know. I mean just a little grimy, like real grimy. You probably got some, some cockroaches dead on the floor over there. Like it's bad. And you're just picturing how is this guy going to come out of the bathroom? He's going to be disgusted. I'm going to be embarrassed. He's going to be like um, ashamed. This is, this is embarrassing. This is terrible. And I want you to imagine something different happening besides that. That he comes out, and he comes out with a toilet wand. And he comes out with rubber gloves on his hand. And maybe even an apron around his waist. And he comes out and says, hey, where are your, can I have your cleaning supplies? Uh, like, I, I'd love to clean your bathroom real quick. 
And I want you to imagine you objecting as much as possible, but, but them insisting and cleaning your bathroom, spick and span. And you can eat off the floor of this bathroom after they clean it. And they come back to the table and they just show love and appreciation and care the rest of the night. Not shame, not guilt, nothing. Wouldn't it stung you? How would you think about that person from then on? I think you would see them so differently. And, and how much more shocking would it be when you consider God? This is whoever you just thought of, or the president, this is just a fickle, frail person. The God that holds everything together, the God that uh, has everything, owns everything, in which everything is moving towards their fame and honor, cleaning your bathroom. Washing your feet like a servant would do. That's shocking. And the final piece of Jesus' humility we see in the text here is the humble crucifixion. Verse 8 reads, And Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's saying this is, this is the rock bottom of Jesus' humility. It doesn't, this is like the descent of the roller coaster at the bottom. Jesus is, was perfectly obedient to the Father, even to the point of the worst death he could have. The, author, the very author of life submitted himself to death, and not just death, but literally the most dishonoring, shameful, agonizing death that could be invented, and it was around, at least at the time. In Roman culture, the crucifixion was too miserable to be used on a citizen. A Roman citizen. It was only for foreigners and slaves. In Jewish culture, anyone who hung on a cross was considered cursed by God. Up until that point, humanity had not created a more degrading, loathsome experience than the cross. So much so that if you were at a dinner party in Roman culture, polite culture would say, you can't even, if you mention the word cross, it's an obscenity. Which, by the way, it makes it crazy to think about Christians starting to wear, later down the road, starting to wear. Uh, crosses around their neck, right? So Jesus, he was excruciatingly nailed to the cross alongside criminals. He was seen as being cursed by God. He was seen as obscenity to the Roman culture. And dying on that cross, he received the unbearable punishment for your sin, for my sin, and the sin of all humanity. That's low. I've probably used this before, but I, I always think of the famous, infamous, Katniss Everdeen. What does she say when she volunteers for her little sister? What does she say? Yes, I volunteer as tribute. Her little sister stood facing certain death, right, for the Hunger Games. And Katniss said, I'm going to substitute in your place. I'm going to volunteer as tribute for you. So you don't, you don't, you're not under the death penalty anymore, and I will take your place. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. He substituted. He volunteered as your tribute, so you're not under the death penalty. You're eternally safe in him. I love how uh, John Calvin says it. He says, For by dying in this way, he was not only covered with disgrace in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. It is assuredly such an example of humility as ought to absorb the attention of all men. It is impossible to explain it in, world, in words suitable to its greatness. And that's how I feel as we're talking about this. I, I don't have the words to explain the greatness, even the gap in which, in the depths in which Jesus went for you and I. And at the cross, we're seeing the very character of God himself. Instead of grasping for power and influence and even life, he laid everything down to give freely, pouring himself out for you. 
And friends, looking at this picture, does it, does it move you? Does it put your heart in awe? It, it, there, there's really a, scarcely a, a more beautiful picture of God's heart, character, and love that should bring us to our knees in worship in awe today. And I love it because it's this grace that changes you. Verse 5 comes with a promise. The, the, the first, the command, have this mindset among yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves, he said earlier. And then he says this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's a promise. You can have his mindset. How? I think about this. I mean, if God became a slave for you, how can you put yourself above anyone? There is no one that you are not uh, above. There's no one that you aren't to serve. No matter how the world may see them. There's no task too lowly. There's no person too unimportant. There's no service too costly in serving others and serving Jesus. There is no more disarming reality to your pride than this truth right here in this verse. Man, if you're struggling with pride, memorize this sucker. You say this every day. I, I, come back to me in a month. Let's talk. <laughs> D.A. Carson writes, the cross serves as the supreme standard of behavior. That's how we behave to one another like Jesus did on the cross as Christians. So we keep our eyes on the cross of Christ and we get to have his very mind, placing others ahead of ourselves. So he takes us low and lower and lower, almost like a, a catapult kind of ratcheting down, right? Building tension. And then in the middle of this passage, Paul kind of pulls the trigger and releases this catapult of and really showing the exaltation now, the highness of Jesus. And that's our second point here and last point is uh, number two, bow to the exalted king. And I want to look at verses 9 through 11 for this. Paul talks about two things. He looks to the past and says, look how Jesus has been exalted. And he looks to the future and says, look at where he will be exalted. Uh, let's look at the past first. Verse 9 says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the, the therefore means this is in response to Christ's actions of humility. The Father glorifies Jesus because of what he's done. The, the Greek word for exalting, it literally means like super elevating. Uh, there's no other, this word is, this is the only place where it shows up in the Bible. So he's saying there, there's no name, there's no position, there's no honor, there's no influence that could be higher. He is the greatest of all time. If you think anyone else is the goat, this one is Jesus is more. In his earthly ministry, Jesus taught this in Matthew 23. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is just really keeping with his own spiritual law here. He lowered himself more than anybody. No one went lower than Jesus. And because of that, he is launched into super exaltation, is what this passage said. He was launched out of the grave, launched out of death into life, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning over everything, with everything under his feet, as the scriptures say. And it says that Jesus is given the name that's above every name. Uh, in, in our culture, in our world, and just in human existence, a, a name can garner a lot of respect or reaction or influence, right? I love it from that movie, The Lion King, like, uh, you know, they're talking about uh, the lion's name, right? Mufasa. And the hyenas are like, say it again. I'm like, Mufasa. Like, say it again, you know. Uh, 
But in us, uh, names can, can give respect. They can get you into important places. They can, if you know someone, um, they can have awe or fear or love or adoration. Uh, history, we, good names uh, have influence, have impact on us. We look at Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Today we look at uh, Bezos or Beyonce and they garner some kind of response, right? And these names may have some influence and some history, but Paul's saying they, those names and every other name you can think of that's great has nothing on this name that Jesus has. Jesus has a lot of names throughout the Bible. I, I didn't, there's actually a lot more than I even thought as I started thinking about this, but we sang some of them today, right? Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. There's more, ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the door, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the light, the lamb, the lion, the bread of life, the rock, the bridegroom. There's lots more. So what name is Paul talking about? One of those or, or a different one? He, he's talking about a, a name that's higher that trumps all the other names. It, it's the name of the eternal God. It's the name Yahweh, the eternal covenant God of Israel. And the point here is that Jesus is given. He has that name. He has the same honor. He has the same authority. He has the same fame that's attributed to God the Father. For the Philippians, they were in a culture that told them, hey, you, you have a Lord. Your Lord is Caesar. You bow your knee to him. You obey him. He is the Lord over your life. But Paul is saying, Philippians, you know who your Lord is. You know the Lord that is above the name of Caesar, that is above every other conceivable authority in your life, and his name is Jesus. And for us too, this is the name we hold above every name. There's no name we respect more. There's no name we honor more. There's no, um, there's no name that we love more than this name, than Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. You think about all those important names of important people I've listed. I don't think, you probably don't know any of them. That I just listed. But here's the deal. Paul says, not only is this name higher than every name, but you know, not only is this Lord above every Lord, but you know this Lord. And I don't mean you like know about him or like you read about him, but like you know him and he knows you. Like he knows every hair on your head. He knows every inclination in your heart. He wakes up and knows the cares on your mind and your anxieties. And he wants to hear about him. He wants you to be in fellowship with him. I mean, I, I think about this, man. When we know someone important or influential, even if you know like a, a C-D-list celebrity, you're like name dropping. I know y'all. At least I'll speak for myself. I, I do that. I find out sneaky ways to, to name drop. I've met someone um, important, right? Um, there was one time where I uh, got to spend a little bit of time with um, a hip-hop artist who, who most of you would probably know his name. And... Um, that was about 10 years ago. I mean, I, I feel like I'm fairly like social. I'm fairly like, confident in social situations. Um, I'm a little awkward, but not too awkward. Uh, but, man, I showed up to this green room to hang out with these guys, and I was like, I was, I was a wreck. I was nervous. I was like, you should have seen me. It was, it was, I was awkward. Uh, but, man, I tell you what. I still find ways to slip in and name drop. Oh, yeah, I know those guys that come on the radio. Oh, yeah, did I tell you one time I, you know, helped put on a concert? I tell you about that one time I, you know, drove them somewhere, hung out in the green room, no big deal, you know? I find ways to drop the name of someone that's probably kind of a C, maybe B-list celebrity in our culture. And how much more do we get excited when we get to actually know the exalted king of the universe, right? I mean, I think we, if we name drop a B-list celebrity uh, who's a frail, fickle, 
gone here, like the grass, gone tomorrow, or here now, gone tomorrow kind of person, how much more are we going to get pumped that we get to know Jesus? How much more are we going to name drop him when we get to know Jesus? We get to know the Lord of creation. So this is the past tense. Jesus has been exalted. It's a historical fact. But then this passage also looks ahead to what is coming. Um, this is our last point in verse 10 and 11. Listen to this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So in response to this high name, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Uh, what, what is the bowing the knee mean? Does this, you guys might think of this like the will you marry me knee. That's the only kind of bow knee I think we're used to. But um, this, that's not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about a knee that bows in, in honor, respect, and acknowledgement of sovereign authority over our lives. It's paying homage uh, and acknowledging their authority. And also you have tongues verbally confessing, saying, Jesus, you are Lord. You are over everything, and you are sovereign. And what this is meant to be, this is an echo of an Old Testament passage. Paul's doing this intentionally from Isaiah 45, 23. This is, this is God saying, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This sounds familiar, right? So these are the words of the forever reigning, forever eternal God, Yahweh. And Paul's doing something incredible. He's saying the two are together. He attributes the same honor, the same name, the same power, the same authority to Jesus. And we have to ask, whose, whose knees are bowing? Whose tongues are confessing? Is it Christians? Is it people in this room? Is it those that know God? Is it the religious and if you look at the passage, it's, that's not it. Every knee, every tongue. What he's saying is everyone, every being will bow before King Jesus and every tongue, every voice, everyone that can speak will acknowledge him. And some will do it out of joy and delight and some will do it out of despair and regret. Every evil dictator and every giant of the faith, every angel, every demon, Every one of your family members, every one of your neighbors, every one of your co-workers, the Buddhist a century ago and the hardened atheist today, every single one of them are going to bow and acknowledge the sovereign rule and person of Jesus. And friends, this is not necessarily a confession of repentance and faith and salvation. It's a confession of sovereign rule and acknowledgement of who Jesus is. His divine sovereignty over everything, including them. So Christian, I hope this should be a comfort to you. Uh, there are many today that scoff at Jesus or scoff at the Jesus life or his people, right? There have probably been times where, where it's hard for you to voice, I'm a Christian, or it's hard for you to voice, I go to a Bible study or I go to a church because of what people might think, Right? But what this is saying is, even though you might have scoffers now, people that uh, uh, are unkind now, but one day they will recognize who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're questioning whether you're a Christian or you are new to any of this, and you feel like, hey, I don't think I've ever bowed my knee to Jesus. I don't think I've ever given my life. Bowing knee is just giving my life to him, acknowledging who he is. 
this text is telling you, it's telling us, you will acknowledge him one day. Jesus is as the sovereign God. He is the sovereign God that you will acknowledge one day. And I, we would beg, we would plead with you now that you would do it in a way that's out of gratitude and delight and joy, looking at the God who has paid everything for your sin and wants to be in forever a relationship with you. But no matter how stubborn and proud and steely you may be, this text is saying you will bow your knee to Jesus, and it'd be much better to do it now. So the roller coaster of Philippians 2, it shows us, right, we went down so this, this deep humility of Jesus, catapulting into this high awesomeness of Jesus. And I love how these play together. Uh, it's what Jonathan Edwards observed uh, when he says, Jesus is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies playing together. Uh, John Piper, one of my favorite books, he says this, he lengthens this out and describes this a little more. I think this quote is longer, but worth our attention and our time. He says, we admire Christ for his transcendence, but even more because of the transcendence of his greatness is mixed with submission to God. We marvel at him because his uncompromising, because his uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness. In his equality with God, he has a deep reverence for God. Though he's worthy of all good, he was patient to suffer evil. His sovereign dominion over the world was clothed with a spirit of obedience and submission. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom, but was simple enough to be loved by children. I love that. He could still the storm with a word, but would not strike the Samaritans with lightning or take himself down from the cross. The glory of Christ is not a simple thing. It's a coming together in one person of extremely diverse qualities. And friends, as we behold even these diverse qualities melted into the one person of Jesus, this is just a taste of what we'll be doing together forever. Uh, even in this quote, but even more so, we'll be celebrating the diverse qualities that give, make Jesus the most glorious being ever to be celebrated uh, forever and ever. And when our hearts behold and are all of this Savior, Paul says you get to be like him. We become what we behold more and more. And by God's grace, we can be these givers. We can give like Christ did, not grab like Adam and Eve did. We get to have the same mindset that Jesus does in this passage. And uh, as the band comes up as we close here, I want to I help you do anything I can to kind of help you feel the, the brunt, the gap, the, the humility in which Jesus has presented himself and has lived. And one of the most powerful acts of humility that we see our servant Savior, our slave-like Savior uh, doing, is washing the disciples' feet in John 13. So much that John 13 says he loved them to the uh, full. In this act, this is the, the fullest way that he loved his disciples. And I, I want to help you comprehend this picture as much as possible. Um, so I, wanna, I want you to just take a minute uh, and just close your eyes. I want you to help just try to focus in on, on what this would be like. Um, I want you to picture yourself coming up to kind of an upper room for a meal around a big table. You are weary and tired after a long day of walking, a long day of ministry. 
but happy to be sitting down and having some food in front of you. And as you're eating, uh, no one takes too much notice, but Jesus gets up and puts a, a towel that was meant for the servants around his waist. And everyone starts to pay attention because he starts to do something they've never seen before, which is the master, the rabbi, start to go from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. Uh, And he comes to the person sitting next to you, and you watch, shocked, as he takes off sandals, washes the grime and the dirt off of their feet. And then he comes to you, and I don't know if you've ever had your feet washed before, but it feels like such an act of just helplessness. <laughs> it's really hard being served. And man, as he comes to you and just looks to you, you, you can even see yourself repeating the words of, of Peter, like, Lord, I, you can't do this. This isn't right. But he says, unless I do this, you can have no part in me. So he takes off your sandals. He washes the grime off your feet. He dries them with a towel around his waist and speaks his tender love over you. And I want you to try to grasp just the the just realness, the radicalness of this, that Jesus, the one who you have just learned, is the Savior of the world the one that holds all things together, the one that is the eternal God has just bent down and done the work of a slave. And that wasn't just that one act, but he was pointing forward to something greater in which we're going to celebrate in the table, which is him laying his whole life down, pouring his whole self out for the, on the cross for your sins. And friends, as we dwell on this picture... This is the God that has laid his life down for you. Would we be in awe of him who lowered himself, stooped down on his knees to clean up the grit and the grime of your sin in which we had no part. We did nothing to contribute. And we joyfully say with the earliest Christians, bending our knee in submission and confessing with our mouths, Jesus, you are Lord to the glory of the Father. So this Christmas, friends, we don't exalt ourselves; We exalt Jesus. We exalt the humble king who is now exalted and reigning. And we count others more significant than ourselves because we're just following after what our Savior has modeled. To honor him. To find joy and peace in following after him. Let's pray together. Father, we are floored by this picture that you've given us. I found myself struggling just to want to articulate the radicalness, the the huge gap, the extremes in which you went to love us and to redeem us and to cleanse us and to show your character and to show your glory, to show your justice and your mercy and your grace all in the incarnation, all on the cross and the resurrection. And God, so we just take this time 
not to have our long list of applications up here, what we're going to do this week, but just to worship you, just to say you're better, just to say you're worth our very lives. And God, I pray if there are people here that have never said that before, have never confessed that, have never bowed the knees of their life to you, that have never given their lives to you, that have never confessed and said, Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's the one that can wash away my sin. He's the one I want to devote my whole life to. God, I pray that that would be their confession today. Holy Spirit, would you do that work? And God, as we see in the worship, man, I pray we'd be, we'd have happy hearts. Happy hearts, the happy hearts that can only be from people that have their shame taken away, that have an identity that is secure, that have an eternity that can be untouched, that have promises that are already confirmed because power of the gospel, the power of Christ's work has already brought them into existence, who has a family that can't be taken away. I pray we'd be those happy people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.